June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're it. reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it Are saying stop it, please. Oh, we're God. reading books, we're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Hello, and welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about reading moldering old tomes. This is episode eight, Stepping Out. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Yokohama Theatre Group, or YTG for short, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. Why not? Give it a try. Give it a go. On this show, we have four wayward readers, including myself. Uh, Tonight, we only have three. (laughs) But each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, which we call reader responses, and answer questions to compete for points. Our school marm, slow with the praise and quick with the ruler on the knuckles, is the mercurial Miss Charlotte. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, sometimes in the negative numbers, although not recently, we've been pretty good about that, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but the weight of the fabric does cause the head to sweat rather profusely. When we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled and the winner will get a prize that is yet to be decided. If you have suggestions, feel free to email us at readers at ytg.jp. Our wayward readers are in alphabetical order by family name, Dr. Emmy Doe, social justice marathoner. Hello! Daniel Wishes, podcaster of weird movies and puppeteer of weird puppets. Hello! And myself, Andrew Wilner, theater maker. Judy Ito, our fourth reader, is unavoidably absent tonight, but the rest of us will talk more to make up for it. As I mentioned earlier, we also have Miss Charlotte Sampson here to lead the discussion on the subject of Wuthering Heights. Good evening, class. Super duper. Uh, well, let's get reading. All right, so... Do you have a synopsis for us, Daniel? All right. Chapter 24. Nellie figures out that Kathy has been visiting Linton at Wuthering Heights. Kathy tells her story. Harriton has been learning to read, but not numbers. Sounds like he could use some transcendental meditation. Kathy makes fun of him. She goes to hang out with Linton. Harriton is so mad, he storms out of the room and kicks Linton out. And Linton is like, oh no, my one weakness, being asked to move a bit. And he coughs up blood and almost dies. When Kathy goes back, Linton is alive and he's like, well, you know everything that happened and it was your fault. You shouldn't have dissed my homie Harriton. Bros before Kathy's. Kathy says, 
All right, then I won't visit again. And Linton is like, no, wait, come back. I'm sorry if you don't come back. My dad will kill me. After this, Kathy tells Nellie, please don't tell my dad. At least think about it. And Nellie remembers all the times she told Kathy not to tell her dad about things and says, yeah, I'll think about it. All right. Think about while I'm walking down the hallway on my way to tell your dad, booyah, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's like when I'm studying transcendental meditation, it's it's this thing, you know, you got to fish for ideas. And Okay, that was, my, that was my attempt at a David Lynch impression. Thank you. Um... <laughs> I thought that was Gil- I thought that was like a really bad Gilbert Gottfried. No, I thought it was Gilbert Gottfried too. <laughs> All right, well that's so Heathcliff is this guy. Yeah, that's zero for one. Then that was that was my <laughs> attempt at David Lynch. See, I was just thinking like generic 1940s newsreel announcer. Uh it's similar, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, I'll do that for I I didn't have that planned, but I'm going to try my my 1940s generic 1940s announcer voice. But I'll do that for the next chapter. Chapter 25. Nellie tells Lockwood, just so you know, the part of the story we're now at only happened a year ago. And yes, I am aware of how messed up it is that I'm telling you this story as a way to amuse you. But maybe you'll marry Kathy, so maybe it's kind of justified. And Lockwood is like, ha, yeah, no. Edgar says, you know I'm dying, and even though I don't want Heathcliff to get what he wants, maybe I should let Kathy marry Linton, if it would make her happy, but he's all sick and dying though, right? He writes Linton a letter and invites him to the Grange. Linton writes back and says, no, I won't come, but not because I'm sick, see? I'm super healthy, see? Honest, but maybe Kathy can meet me halfway. Meanwhile, Joseph is in a real kettle of fish when he reveals in his thick Yorkshire accent dialect that he's been invited to dine with the Duchess of Devonshire as they're actually cousins. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's very similar to the David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, that's, but that's my 1940s announcer voice. All right, well, let's wrap things up with pulling this one out of my chest of impressions that doesn't exist. <clears throat> Chapter 26. Kathy goes to meet Linton halfway, but has to go more than halfway because Linton couldn't walk that far. When they see him, he doesn't move and looks almost dead. Kathy wants to leave, but Linton says, please stay and pretend that I made an effort to woo you so my dad doesn't beat me. They agree to meet next Thursday. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And of course, a puppeteer chooses that voice. All right, well, you can't say I didn't try a bit, at least. That was amazing. See, at I least think- we all. I think we all know what that last one was. I made it a bit easier this time because the last few times you didn't get it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time listening, listening to David Lynch talk. Oh, you mean the impression? Oh, I thought. Sorry, I thought you meant the um, oh, the, the incorrect the error? error I made. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the incorrect. But no, the last uh, impression yeah. was, of course, Ray Romano from Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right. So, uh, where's the error? Spot the error. You want to go? You want to go, Emmy? No, I was I was too busy laughing. I wasn't paying attention at all to the content. <laughs> okay, well, I, to my memory, Joseph did not have any meal with a duchess. Ah, uh, you, you spotted it. You got the. You got it. <laughs> I was really worried because I hadn't spotted it yet. And then he said that I'm like, okay, he made it easy this time. So that that kills the synopsis and the homework assignment yeah, and the read, yeah. reader response. So, so why don't I, why don't I give you a grade, Daniel? Given that you've been such a good sport about doing the synopsis each week, I'm not going to penalize you for only having done half of your assigned work for today. Uh, but I am... Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, I think you're about to say A+. plus. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was going to say was, these are not terribly exciting chapters, and I kind of... I kind of knew that this week would be phoning it in a little bit. Uh, we'd had a pretty big recording session for last episode, but your synopsis hit the the major points. I mean, shit, I'm feeling in a generous mood. Fuck it. You made us all laugh. A plus. Yay. Good stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have it in me to be mean just now. We'll, we'll see how I feel towards the end of the episode, but just now... I can't be arsed to be to to to, to be a bitch about it. Uh, you might change your you might change your mind when I when we hit my theory about something in a bit. 
Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. My wild conspiracy theory. Hey, wild conspiracy theories are fine. Anyway, uh, yeah, this episode, I really just have one discussion question, but it's going to be a little bit extensive because we're going to be looking at basically character studies of this entire generation of youngsters and with a specific view to one aspect in particular. And I pulled out one quote, just one quote that I want to use as a bit of a, a the jumping off point here. So if you remember in chapter 24, when Linton has his surprisingly violent temper tantrum, you know, right before he coughs up a bunch of blood and passes out, Joseph has this to say. He offers these words of wisdom. So there, that's the father, he cried. That's father. So we've all got something of others of the other side in us. And I think that we can read that in a couple of ways. Uh, we could just read it sort of face value, everyone has a hidden side kind of thing. But I want to focus on other side, or either side rather, in lieu of his mentioning Linton's father, Heathcliff. Because what I want to ask, and what I hope that we can discuss for this episode, we've already talked about Withering Heights as an intergenerational narrative. And we also know that material inheritance of property is a running theme throughout. So now I want to talk about inheritance of character. Like, if we are to look at this current generation, so Linton, Kathy the Younger, and Harriton, by this point in the novel, we know a little bit of something about each of their parents. And what I want us to discuss are the ways in which the novel plays around with that notion of hybridity, that children are in some way an amalgam of both parents, of either side, as Joseph might put it. So it's kind of a cliche, the nature versus nurture thing, but I'm wondering if, as a group, we can disentangle, perhaps, what the narrative suggests about human character and to what degree they owe their aspect and demeanor to their parentage, and to what degree they own it to the circumstances of their birth and upbringing. And we can go character by character, or just idea by idea, whatever. Um, honestly, I cannot be arsed. Daniel, you've got your hand up. Yeah, so when I read that line by Joseph, I actually thought about this. Uh, it was like something I was thinking about. And I don't know, like... If if I'm wrong or if I just missed something, but to me, I really didn't agree with Joseph. I didn't really think that Linton had a lot in common with his father. I mean, Linton has some temper and he's kind of moody, but it, to me, it felt like a different way than the way Heathcliff was moody and temperamental. So I just, I don't know. I kind of felt it was like, it's the kind of thing people say is to blame kids' behavior on their parents, but really, I don't... Like, I feel like Linton is horrible in a different way than, like, all the ways that, you know, Isabel and Heathcliff are terrible. I, I mean, I think the reason why, uh, I think the reason why Joseph mentions, mentions it is that the, it's the first time we've really seen that side of Linton. And so it's, it's like, yeah, in general, that's the whole thing is that Linton is not at all like Heathcliff. But there's this, there is this moment and he does basically, I mean, he, he doesn't just throw a temper tantrum. He threatens to murder Harriton, right? Which is a very kind of Heathcliffy thing. But, you know, I mean, it's it's arguable because it's like, it's a, also a bit of like a Hinley thing. Heathcliff isn't really the murdering type. He's the more like the cold revenge spread out over 40 years type. Well, no, that was just exactly what I was going to say. Like, Heathcliff doesn't go and rage. Well, I mean, he like smolders in it. <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah, whereas I think Kinley was kind of the one that was pointing, like, hysterically pulling out guns and <laughs> stabbing his legs and stuff, you know? <laughs> I Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like, maybe the only thing that Linton has got from his father is his inability to change. I would say that he does change. He's getting progressively worse. He has a definite arc. Like, normally in a story of a character arc, he has more of a, char a character downward spiral, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Like, I mean, I think we're we're seeing like a rougher, a rougher. Like, certainly the environment's brought out a rougher side of him, but I think he'd still be like an unpleasant little selfish person, even if he was being treated really well, right? He was he was kind of that way when we first met him. Mm. Oh, do I have to use my eyes to look at things? <laughs> it's so tiring. Thank you, thank you for that, Andrew. <laughs> so this is maybe a little bit of an aside, but what do you make of that weird section where Catherine and Linton are talking about their separate ideas of heaven, mm. like their idea of paradise? So it's the paragraph uh, just a short way down, um, not quite halfway down chapter 24. One time, however, we were near quarreling. Does someone want to volunteer to read that? To read the whole paragraph? Yeah, read the whole paragraph. Get the listeners in on it. He said the pleasantest manner of spending a hot July day was lying from morning till evening on a bank of heath in the middle of the moors with the bees humming dreamily about among the bloom and the lark singing high up overhead and the blue sky and bright sun shining steadily and cloudlessly. That was his most perfect idea of heaven's happiness. Mine was rocking in a rustling green tree with a west wind blowing and bright white clouds flitting rapidly above and not only larks, but throstles and blackbirds and linnets and cuckoos pouring out music on every side and the moors seen at a distance broken into cool dusky dells. But close by, great swells of long grass undulating in waves to the breeze and the woods and sounding water and the whole world awake and wild with joy. He wanted all to lie in an ecstasy of peace. I wanted all to sparkle and dance in a glorious jubilee. I said his heaven would, on, would be only half alive, and he said mine would be drunk. I said I should fall asleep in his, and he said he could not breathe in mine and began to grow very snappish. At last, we agreed to try both, and as soon as the right weather came, and then we kissed each other and were friends. Thank you, Emmy. So clearly we've got some character contrast here. Um, to tie this back into our overarching discussion question, do we see anything of the parents in this sort of weird dichotomy of aspirations here? I mean, Kathy's idea seems to be in line with what you would expect her mother to want, but I don't see, I don't see Heathcliff or Isabella there, to be honest. I guess there's some, they were both sometimes passive, but not like that. Not like, I don't want to move my arms or listen to things. It makes my ears tired. Yeah, you know, when Emmy read that passage just now, it sounded really beautiful. And I realized that's a beautiful passage. But when I just read it to myself, I think I was just like hyper-focused on that one line where he said, he said he couldn't breathe in my fantasy. And I just have this image going like, I don't like your fantasy. Your fantasy, mine's better. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's such an absurd thing to fight about, though. Yeah. Although I totally empathize because I feel like I have this argument with so many like ex-partners about how to spend a Sunday. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because you're like, I'm going to run 100 kilometers and they're like, um, I'm going to sit for a minute. <laughs> I am bad. I'm like, well, there's so many things to see. <laughs> um, so that I would that's the that's the monologue that I had going on in my head. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if Linton's criteria for stuff that he can't do is that he can't breathe, there's a lot of stuff that he just can't do. <laughs> I mean, let's consider that he starts coughing up blood at one point. He's clearly much more well, maybe not more ill than everyone thinks, but he's not, he's not just whining for the sake of whining. The kid is pretty severely ill. If he's at the point where yelling impassionately brings on a coughing fit that brings up blood with it, like that, we're talking some advanced stage, likely TB. TB kills everyone. <laughs> I think, I think at some point you've got to, you just can't you can't get away with crap just because you're like dying i just i think there's like a limit to that as i say when we met him he wasn't super he wasn't super pleasant then either but yeah going back to like the parents though isabella wasn't helpless was she not i, I don't like remember this. her being that 
helpless. She's well, naive, maybe, yeah, yeah. but naive and a little bit passive, especially at the beginning. Like, given how much she goes along with with Heathcliff out of this really misguided affection for him. Yeah, but that's different because that that's like that's got to do with her affection for him. That's not got to do with her innate passivity and you know inability to sit in a chair <laughs> or so, ability I, I, to eat oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there's some playing around with the notion of hybridity in the novel. But I think that one thing that that we've discussed in, in terms of Linton is that he's got to get it from somewhere. And there's kind of a suggestion that I think it was, yeah, it was you, Daniel, who brought up that it was Joseph being sort of a poor judge of character in that moment. I'm actually going to give you some points for that. Three points. But then on the other hand, when we look at Catherine Jr., we do see some flashes of the vivacity that we saw in Catherine the Elder. And just that love of wild nature, like her idea of that perfect day is to be out in a nature that is active. And like she herself is active in it. So I, I guess what I'm wondering is, given that we have this one kid who seems to have come out of nowhere who, in terms of characteristics of either parent, well, we have Joseph's opinion that there's some flash of temper in him, but that really only kind of comes up that one time. Most of the time, he's just kind of peevish and whiny. I was going to say, you have the physical, you have the, the physical aspects as well, right? Like, so he, he looks like the Lintons, right? He's pale, mm. he's doll-like, he's fragile. That's how they were described initially as well. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that. I mean, it doesn't do anything. It's nothing about the personality, but he's got the physical aspects of, of the Lintons. And what's really kind of interesting, though, is like Kathy never met her mom. So like how f interesting is it that like all of these characteristics are so similar, whereas Linton is being raised by his dad and doesn't exhibit much of his like because if anything, like the young Heathcliff was very stoic, wasn't he? He just kind of put up with things and didn't whine and just was able to endure. Harriton is a lot more like little Heathcliff. Yeah, than right. Totally. But Nellie would have you believe that that's like on purpose, that like Heathcliff is some crazy mastermind that is able to like, <laughs> like shape these children to be, you know. I mean, I mean, ostensibly, he did deny Harriton an education, which he, he can't be, you know, whatever else he think, he can't be excused for. Like, that's that's him. No one else did that. So, I, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't disbelieve that Heathcliff has revenge in mind. But anyway, we're getting off the, we're getting off the track. Why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about Harriton? Where does Harriton get his qualities? We know about Harriton's dad. We know, we, we, we know kind of what Hindley was like. We don't know so much about Francis. We don't know so much about Hindley's wife. All we know about her is, is oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. <coughs> Funk. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally. And the, I think the line was, she coughed and died. <laughs> I mean, I think that was the line. So that's all we know. So he doesn't really take after her much at all, because he's, he's, you know, alive. <laughs> but... It's so hard. Do we see any of Hindley in him? Like he's got a temper, but like everybody, all the all the men who aren't like the Lintons have a temper in this. It seems they've all kind of got these weird sort of masculine kind of <laughs> things going on. This northern farmer stereotype, I guess. Well, you know, Harrington does have he is, he does develop some thick Yorkshire accent, which he might might be passed down to him from Joseph. Joseph, I imagine, is like probably a an important male parental figure in Harrington's life. Is it just me or is his accent getting thicker as the chapters wear on? I feel like it's he's using more he used more dialect than he did the like the like the first few times we saw him. Hmm. I'm not quite sure what to do with, with, with that observation. I think it could also be that in his own way, he is becoming more articulate. It's just that his particular method or his particular, let's say, flavor of articulacy has more to do with the language that he hears. And that's pretty much all from Joseph. A little bit from Heathcliff every now and then. Yeah, it could be. Although, I mean, dialect here, dialect in this book seems to signal things. 
Right, it's used as a it's used as a signifier. So the fact that it's getting thicker, I don't think would be it. If if it is, if it is, and it's not just me like noticing something that's not actually there. Trust could be, your like, trust your instincts. At the very least, even if you turn out to be wrong and you're going down the the rabbit hole for no reason, at the very least, it's a way to it's another avenue of inquiry. Like if you read and you think there's something in there, it doesn't always mean that it's going to be correct, but it's a good place to start. This is one of the things that that I try to instill in my students in a much more professional context than this, is your initial like gut check of a text is probably not going to fly if you're submitting like an actual essay, but your gut check is the only place that you can start from. Because you can't really do any textual research until you know what it is you want to look at. So, Andrew, I would say that if that's sort of your gut feeling, that there's something to Harriton's dialogue that that veers heavier and heavier into dialect, it's worth checking out. I will admit that it's not a connection that I necessarily made myself. I just sort of took it for granted. You know, I was kind of wondering the same thing that Andrew was wondering I, I didn't have any feeling either way, but I wondered, like, is his accent getting thicker? But then I also remembered, but we're not actually, it's not actually Harridan speaking. It's actually Nellie doing her impression of Harridan. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it all, it's all up to, like, I just, anytime I hear any dialogue in the story, I always imagine Nellie doing that dialogue. She's performing that dialogue for Lockwood. She's like doing all the characters, um, maybe using objects that she finds on his night table to like, as puppets to like act it out. Okay, this is Kathy and this is, this is Linton. Oh, Linton's like, and, and, you know. Lockwood does have that picture of Kathy in his room, which is super duper weird. Now I'm just imagining, like, you know, the thing where you poke out the, 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 the lips in a portrait and stick your own <laughs> lips through it. And... <laughs> That's sort of, now I'm just picturing Nellie doing that for Catherine's <laughs> And it's awful. But that is an excellent point, Daniel. Two points. If we think about Nellie as performing this dialect, it kind of gives her a lot of control over how those characters are portrayed. And if we already know that dialect is as it would have appeared to... Okay, I want to be careful about this point, because written dialect, especially Yorkshire dialect, was not a big thing in English literature. Sir Walter Scott, who was, you know, writing around the time of the action of Wuthering Heights, so sort of early 19th century-ish, experimented a lot a lot with Scots dialect, but sort of Northern English dialect didn't really have much standard ways of representing it. And so Wuthering Heights is actually one of the early attempts at portraying like a Northern dialect and accent. So to the readers of her day, it would have very conspicuously marked out Joseph especially, but also Harriton, as being not just lower class, but also being kind of provincial, like country bumpkin, who don't necessarily speak the way that, you know, civilization, such such as, you know, Southerners would have conceived of it. And so the fact that Nellie goes out of her way to replicate that dialect, well, it could tell us a bit of something about how Nellie wants Lockwood to think of Harriton. Sort of, even though she kind of pities Harriton, she's not necessarily above representing him in this degraded state. Not necessarily because she's trying to be mean, but maybe because she wants to emphasize how ignorant Harriton is. It, 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 to sort of represent, this is, isn't it awful what's been done to him? Yeah, so that brings me to my fan, my fan conspiracy theory. Ooh, good. Let's get there. Okay. It's all, it's all going to sort of hinge on what happens in the last few chapters. I've been sort of giving Nellie the benefit of the doubt, part, partly because we're seeing this through her eyes, and so it's easy to sympathize with her. She could easily... Okay, this is this is really on the level of Jar Jar Binks as a Sith Lord. Um, I don't know if you've heard that Star Wars fan theory. Nellie Dean could be the villain, villain of this story. Like, she... she like, cause she, does, she leaves stuff out. She's really manipulative 
Um, and I wasn't like agreeing with someone who was saying this last week. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. It just seems. But now I'm thinking about it more and more. The young Nellie Dean got to eat at this at the table with the children children, and she was kind of their equal. And I feel like maybe she's uh, she's getting revenge because that was taken away. Like the time that she leaves little Heathcliff out on the stairs. Sorry, I'm, I'm going outside the scope of these chapters for a second. She leaves <laughs> little Heathcliff on the stairs. Still referring to Heathcliff as it at this point, if you recall. And then um, Mr. Old Mr. Earnshaw like sends her out to the like out of the main part of the house, and she would realize that she's still a servant. And I feel like the way she's treating the characters, and so she's sometimes on one character's side, sometimes on another character, and she's doing all these things to set them up to do things. I mean, I'm, I'm like oversimplifying here, but I mean, I don't think this is, this is not how she is represented at all, I don't think, usually in media, but like, my god, I think, I think Nellie Dean is a Sith Lord. <laughs> like, you know, Darth Dean that I mean, and so just to bring it back to this, I think that would explain why she's trying to make Harriton seem particular, like really degraded. She's try she tries to cast everyone else. That's why none of the other fucking characters are likable. Why would she want them to be likable? I, I mean, she basically reveals her plan in these chapters. She says, "I." She kind of says, "Yeah, I know it's crazy to be telling all these personal details to a stranger, but maybe you won't be a stranger. Maybe you could marry Kathy. That'd be pretty cool." Yeah. So maybe she does. She's like disinherited in order to convince Lockwood to like marry Kathy to get Kathy the hell out of there. Because at this point, if she ends up with Harriton, which is the direction it's going in, it's like you know she's she's going to be stuck at the heights. It's not going to be great. I mean, I I, I imagine Nellie might just hope that Kathy gets the hell out of Yorkshire. You know, just get the hell away from the Moors. Who knows what Nellie wants. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think she wants, I think she wants revenge. She wants to be like, she insinuates herself to a point where she's like, she's the servant, but she's also in charge. Was it when Isabella came back and she's like, oh, I sent a servant to take care of that. She kind of behaves like Edgar's wife through a lot of this, right? She's moved herself up to the like highest level she can actually go without being like part of the family. And I'm not sure she's done that in a generous and loving way. You know, she's she's against Edgar when like it's it suits her to be like it doesn't help her. And then she's she's like his, you know, right hand girl when when it when it does suit her purposes. I don't know. I'm starting to really think badly of Nellie Dean. <laughs> I'll give you five points for this observation, not because I necessarily agree wholly. Although, as I as I stated last last episode, she's definitely a liar and is definitely able to bend the truth to make herself look better or to downplay her role in things as she needs to. So we can pursue the degree to which Nellie is acting in bad faith, perhaps. One thing that I would... One of the tough things about literary criticism is that at the end of the day, all we have is the text in front of us. There is no actual record of events for the happenings within a text. Like, there are no real people. There's no real Nellie Dean that we can compare. All we have is a set of characters and the narrative that tells us about them. However, when a text goes out of its way to establish the exact provenance of the narrative itself, again, as I said last week, we should be prepared to to interrogate that somewhat. That just accepting everything at face value might not be the way to go. Again, that means that we're left with subtext to, to try to work out some perhaps coherent, let's say, sub-narrative. Because again, if Emily Bronte had some grand plan, if she had some, you know, secret Nellie Dean conspiracy in mind, we don't know it. We don't have those notes of hers. But I think that the instinct to take a closer look at who's telling the story is a good one. We're way off topic for the discussion question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Any way you slice it, do you think that there is a sort of prescriptive like, scheme in the novel as to whether someone's parentage is more important than their upbringing? And if not then is there some point to the fact that we can't nail down a person's character based on their parentage or their upbringing? 
I mean, that's actually kind of hard to, I feel that's like hard to answer until we, we know how this turns out. Because, like, is the Heathcliff Kathy story going to repeat or is something going to break it? And if that's, is that something going to come from an outside environmental factor? Or is it could come, come from a fundamental difference in character between, say, Harriton and Heathcliff and, or, and Kathy and Kathy? <laughs> right? Is it going to come from a fundamental difference in character, like something that they can, like, what they're missing, a, one, of them, one or both of them is missing a fatal flaw, which doomed Heathcliff, which would be like an inherent characteristic? Or is it like an environmental thing, like, I don't know, um, some some person comes in with a lightsaber and starts chopping chopping up the chopping up Heathcliff. Spoilers. Every, everyone lives happily ever after. Well, you well, know, I guess it would be Nellie Dean if she's the Sith Lord of the novel. <laughs> well, no, I don't. <laughs> oh no, I was positing a I was positing an outside force like a Jedi coming in and, uh, or perhaps a gray Jedi. If we're gonna go off on a lore tangent. <laughs> And so far, the only outsider is Lockwood, and he doesn't seem the lightsaber type. <laughs> no, not really. Unless, unless he's doing a, unless he's doing like a Scarlet Pimpernel kind of thing. Like he's, he's doing a, what was that, what was that character's name? Not the Scarlet Pimpernel, his alter ego. It was, um, Lord, you know, the, he's a fop, right? They seek him here, they seek him there, those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Um. You lost me. You don't know the Scarlet Pimpernel? It's about a guy who basically is rescuing French people from the French Revolution, like aristocrats from the French Revolution. He's an English aristocrat and his, he has a secret identity and he, he, he disguises it by pretending he's an idiot. Sir Percy Blakeney. Blakeney, that's it. Hmm. Yeah. Sir Percy Blakeney. And yeah. So, but yeah, I don't think Lockwood is, I think you're right. I don't think Lockwood is a Sir Percy Blakeney. <laughs> he reveals himself at the end. No, I'm actually a superhero. I'm here to, s I heard about this through Somehow, and I'm here to save everyone. Pulls off a rubber mask, and it was Kathy the whole time. She faked her death. <laughs> <laughs> That's doubly weird. Where like she's narrating someone else narrating her life story. That's <laughs> that well, might be. That's that was if David Lynch wrote Wuthering Heights. Maybe that's what would happen. <laughs> if if David Lynch wrote Wuthering Heights halfway through the book, Kathy would open a box. And then she would be played by a different actress for the rest of the movie. And, <laughs> and then we just cut randomly to a little man in a room doing mysterious things, and you'd have to figure it out. Okay, so Andrew, you've kind of given us a bit of your opinion. Um, Emmy, Daniel, anything to, to suggest in, in whether the novel has any particular design? Yeah, I mean, I think Andrew is right in that I think we have to finish reading the book and see the whole picture before we could really fairly determine what her her message of the story is. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the thing that stands out is like the Kathy piece, like, you know, the fact that this child hasn't been raised at all with her mom and has so many characteristics that are so similar like that seems really interesting and and um the fact that the two boys who have been raised by heathcliff are so different or not so different but not very much like their parents um i is another thing that kind of like stands out but i'm not sure what that is trying to say i think what i would like to offer as sort of a food for thought going forward I think it is significant that the one who makes such a big deal about Linton's temper tantrum being evidence of his father in him and his, and his pronouncing that all of us have a bit of either side, there is some suggestion here. And we can, we can revisit this in future episodes. What do we know about Joseph? We know that he is a religious hypocrite that he is quite bigoted, quite old-fashioned in his thinking. And if that mindset, that Joseph mindset, also insists that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree based solely on parentage, what might that say about people's 
attitudes towards children that they are bringing up. And whether or not the similarities between Catherine the Younger and Catherine the Elder, maybe it's sort of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Everyone's expecting Kathy the Younger to be like Kathy the Elder, because she looks so much like her, that some of her upbringing is maybe even unintentionally engineered towards encouraging her to turn out that way. I mean, like Kathy the Elder, she's pretty isolated. She is obviously brought up with more manners than Catherine the Elder, but in terms of her daily activities, it's just kind of lounging around and going outside in a very circumscribed geographic region. And we already know that there was some, we've talked before about the prejudice against Heathcliff from the start, and how something of his ethnicity has played not a small role in the way people treated him as he was growing up. So I want to posit that there is some suggestion, maybe not quite on the level of a, a, a programmatic schema or anything like that, but some suggestion that the circumstances of one's birth and parentage are not quite determiners of, of personality, but they do to some degree determine how the adults will treat those kids as they grow up. And maybe one reason why Linton is not at all the way we expect him to be is that he's raised apart by Isabella for the first 12 years of his life, outside of this teeny tiny community where everyone already has an opinion of who you are from the day you're born. Well, Heathcliff does give a damn one or the other. I would say Harriton has got the most engineered upbringing because Heathcliff... I mean, according to Nellie Dean, Heathcliff has engineered him to be that way. But again, we have confirmation of his actual personality because of Lockwood's encounter with him in, mm -hmm. in the first few chapters, right? So we, can, we can't trust really anything Nellie Dean says except for the stuff that's been confirmed by Lockwood. I mean, my suggestion last week is that Heathcliff, in his malice, is a lot more passive than perhaps Nellie Dean wants us to believe he is. Mm. But, I mean, neglect... Neglect can be passive, but that doesn't make it okay. So, one thing that we might say about Harriton is that he's actually a pretty strong argument for the role that nurture plays in developing character. And we'll, we'll kind of see later on in the, in the novel how his character continues to develop. Um, because we do see some hints in this, in this section that he does want to improve. He wants to improve for Catherine's sake. He's so proud when he says that he can finally read the name above the lintel. In fact, why don't we just, we'll look at that passage really quickly and then we can move on to, to, to other stuff. But I just, I find it kind of heartbreaking. I just, both in terms of how proud he is and how really kind of mean Kathy She's is so in return. Mean. She was so mean. So again, we're in chapter 24. We're about halfway down. Uh, it's actually a couple of paragraphs down from the the one that we read at the beginning. Uh, does somebody want to start reading that uh, from where at the bottom it says he answered in his vulgar accent? He answered in his vulgar accent. It wouldn't do Mitch hurt if it did, and surveyed its legs with a smile. I was half inclined to make it try. However, he moved off to open the door, and as he raised the latch, he looked up to the inscription above and said, with a stupid mixture of awkwardness and elation, Miss Catherine, I can read yon now. Wonderful, I exclaimed. Pray, let us hear you. You are grown clever. He spelt and drawled over by syllables the name Harriton Earnshaw. And the figures, I cried encouragingly, perceiving that he came to a dead halt. I cannot tell them yet, he answered. Oh, you dunce, I said, laughing heartily at his failure. The fool stared with a grin hovering about his lips and a scowl gathering over his eyes, as if uncertain whether he might not join in my mirth, whether it were not pleasant familiarity, or what it really was, contempt. I settled his doubts by suddenly retrieving my gravity and desiring him to walk away, for I came to see Linton, not him. He reddened, I saw that by the moonlight, dropped his hand from the latch and skulked off, a picture of mortified vanity. He imagined himself to be as accomplished as Linton, I suppose, because he could spell his own name and was marvelously discomfited that I did not think I didn't think the same. Okay, thank you. So we're sort of seeing the beginning 
of Harriton's coming to an awareness of just how poorly he's been done by, and the degree to which he wants to raise himself up out of it. But obviously he's not going to get much help, and Catherine might be his inducement to, to, to do so. He might be doing so out of a desire to impress her, but at least at this point, it, it rather seems like she doesn't deserve it. She gives him very little encouragement, and in fact only seems to do so so that she can make fun of him. So, it's significant that the word that Harriton reads is his own name, but he doesn't understand what the numbers mean. Perhaps if he did, he would have a greater sense of exactly what he's been cheated out of. Ooh. That this is an ancient property that was in his family for generations. I mean, he's still an Earnshaw, so it was owned, passed down by the male line, since at least 1500. That's got a sting, but he does not know exactly how much it does. So... Kathy's obviously making fun of him and not impressed, even though he's making a real effort. But Heathcliff is like deliberately trying to prevent Harridan from being literate or getting any education. So I assume that Harridan had to kind of self-teach himself how to read, which is kind of more impressive than having someone else teach you. That is the implication. Because Heathcliff's not going to encourage him one way or another. And... If Heathcliff tells Joseph not to give him any books or scrap paper or whatnot, Joseph's not going to do it. Joseph kind of seems rather content to go along with Harriton's being a a clown. Clown in the sense of a rural rustic type, not in the, you know, where's the white <laughs> face the, makeup and the, the, the big red nose. Yeah, it shows that, you know, even though he hasn't received any education, he has some intelligence. And now it's time for Miss Charlotte's Bronte Bites. Brewed in age, aged oak barrels, 50 years with the... F I don't know what I'm saying. Miss Charlotte's Bronte Bites! Alright. <clears throat> so for this episode's Bronte Bite, I thought we could talk a little bit about Emily Bronte's time in Brussels. I think I alluded to this a little bit in a previous episode, that she and Charlotte Bronte had spent some time at a school in Brussels. So around 1841, uh, they had started planning their, their sort of next move. Really, the Bronte sisters didn't have a whole lot in terms of prospects, except for either going to school or teaching at school. Like, that throughout their lives until their writing careers sort of took off. That was what they expected out of life. And around 1841, they worked out this design of potentially opening up a school, which kind of fell through. And it was actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Charlotte Bronte's idea of going to the continent to learn some French in preparation for opening up a school of theirs so that, you know, French being sort of one of the languages that young ladies would have been expected to learn. Like, the state of young women's education at the time was such that if you had sufficient money to go to school and you wanted to make sure you were accomplished, learning continental languages was just one of those things that you learn, in addition to, like, drawing, playing piano, or some other suitably feminine instrument. So learning French was a decent idea on their part, because it would have given them something more teachable when they came back to, to, to England. Anne didn't go. She was, at the time, pretty close to their aunt, Elizabeth Branwell. And Elizabeth Branwell was doing a little bit poorly around this time, so it was decided that Charlotte and Emily would go to Brussels. They went to a boarding school uh, owned by a Mr. Constantine Eger and his wife Zoe Eger. Quite famously, Charlotte Bronte developed a huge crush on Constantine. They were quite close in age at this time, actually. I think, like, Charlotte was 25, Constantine was in his early 30s, I think. So a little bit older, but not a huge age difference. They were already pretty old to be going to a boarding school, 
And they were there kind of by special arrangement. Like, the idea was they had a little bit of money that they had received from their aunt, but it wouldn't have been quite enough to go there. So they kind of scrimped and saved, and they taught classes on the side. Emily taught music lessons. She was quite an accomplished pianist by that point in her life. But by all accounts, Emily Bronte was miserable during her time in Brussels. She was homesick. She and Charlotte were the only Protestants in a school full of Catholics. Charlotte made some attempt to copy the Belgian, like, dress, like, like the Belgian fashions and style of a dress, but Emily was having none of it. She wanted to appear as God made her. That was kind of her stance. Emily was very contentious. I, I, I feel like if anything about Emily's life that we can take away was that she, she was just prickly and argumentative when she was not being painfully shy. Or like, punching a dog. <laughs> and punching a dog. But she only smoked, she, she spoke just a smattering of French up to that point. I've mentioned before that their education was very uneven. So Emily Bronte, with the exception of like three months, that she had spent at a school in England, and whatever she was able to self-teach, that was basically it for her French instruction. So she actually received her instruction straight from Constantine Hege, but was so invested in not doing the, like, kiddie-level homework that he assigned. Like, he assigned homework very much in the vein of read this essay in French and do an imitation in its style. And Emily Bronte was like, no, fuck that. I have my own style of writing. Because she had been, you know, doing the... Working on the weird little shared fictional world from in her sisters, both Glasstown. And then later on, she and Anne made their own special secret universe called Gondol. Which I'll have to talk about more in a Bronte bite in a future episode. And we have some of her surviving essays. In fact, it's one of the few surviving notes uh, that we have of Emily Bronte's during her time there, because we don't have her correspondence, she didn't keep a journal, but we do have her essays, and learned French at just an astonishing rate, like much quicker than Constantine Eger expected her to. And I want to read an excerpt from an essay that she wrote in so May 15th, 1842, titled The Cat, or Le Chat, in French. A cat, in its own interest, sometimes hides its misanthropy under the guise of amiable gentleness. Instead of tearing what it desires from its master's hand, it approaches with a caressing air, rubs its pretty little head against him, and advances a paw whose touch is soft as down. When it has gained its end, it resumes its character of Timon, and that artfulness in it is called hypocrisy. In ourselves, we give it another name, politeness, and he who did not use it to hide his real feelings would soon be driven from society. But, says some delicate lady who has murdered half a dozen lapdogs through pure affection, the cat is such a cruel beast. He is not content to kill his prey. He torments it before his death. You cannot make that accusation against us. More or less, madame. Your husband, for example, likes hunting very much, but foxes being rare on his land, he would not have the means to pursue this amusement often if he did not manage his supplies thus. Once he has run an animal to its last breath, he snatches it from the jaws of the hounds and saves it to suffer the same infliction two or three more times, ending finally in death. You yourself avoid the bloody spectacle because it wounds your weak nerves. But I have seen you embrace your child in transports when he came to show you a beautiful butterfly crushed between his cruel fingers. And at that moment... I really wanted to have a cat, with the tail of a half-devoured rat hanging from its mouth, to present as the image, the true copy, of your angel. So yeah, Emily Bronte, kind of a contentious bitch. <laughs> Sounds like a fun date. <laughs> she, it's, it's impossible to overstate how just the the heights of Emily's Emily Bronte's hatred for humanity could get 
Like when she was in a mood to think ill of the human race as a whole, she just went flat out in it. So maybe it's no surprise that, that the characters in Wuthering Heights do such horrible, horrible things. She did not have a very high opinion of humanity. Or cats, really. <laughs> well, she actually suggests in the rest of the essay that cats are actually kind of better than humans, because it's humans that call cats hypocrites for, you know, being affectionate one minute and then, you know, chomping down the, the next. Whereas humans, when they do it, they do it in the name of, you know, politeness and society. That cats don't hide who they are. They're very straightforward in bestowing affections one second and then turning to violence the next. This has been the story of how the Bronte sisters got their nickname as the Muscles from Brussels, brought to you by Miss Charlotte's Belgian Waffle Bronte Bites. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are curious, um, if you want to, uh, if you ever have an opportunity to visit Brussels, uh, you can visit the place where the pensionnat, the, the, the boarding house, used to be. There's a plaque in Rue Isabelle, which is, it's not the exact spot where the school was, because actually where it was is now the Palais des Beaux-Arts in Brussels. If you go to the Palais des Beaux-Arts, you will see at the intersection of Rue Ravenstein and Rue Terraquin, that's part of where the old boarding school used to be. I'll see if I can get a more exact address um, so we can put that on the website for people who are interested in following the lives of the Brontes. If you are interested in following the lives of the Brontes, Please email the show and tell us your travel plans and how you plan to emulate their lifestyle. I'd love to know and make fun of it. Cathartic Pop Quiz. What reason slash excuse, maybe, does Nellie give for asking Catherine to read to her? Uh, Daniel. Her eyes are tired, not working. Yeah, it says, on the first occasion of my sitting up in the evening, I asked Catherine to read to me because my eyes were weak. So, yeah. It sounds very like something Linton would say. My eyes are weak. It's so hard <laughs> for me to look at stuff. Those colors are too bright. Two points for Daniel. What kind of a bribe does Catherine give Michael, the groom, so that he will prepare her pony in the evenings? Andrew. Books, specifically books. her books. He asks to borrow ones from the library, but she decides to give him hers instead, which he finds preferable. Okay, two points for the answer and a bonus point for the extra detail. Yes, something to say, Daniel? Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because earlier in that same section, Nellie was saying like, oh, I think Kathy didn't want to read to me because she didn't like my choice in literature. So I asked Kathy to read me some of her books instead. And I thought that would have been funny if... She had been like, uh, I don't have any books left because I gave them all to Michael. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was a very pointed question. Maybe she noticed some of Catherine's books were missing. Maybe this is part of the Nelly conspiracy. Anyway, so during Catherine's second visit to see Linton at Wuthering Heights, uh, both Joseph and Harriton are absent. Where has each of them gone? Emmy. Joseph was out at a prayer meeting and Harriton was off with his dogs, robbing our woods of pheasants. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's the bit where Harriton's poaching. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'll give you four points, one for each part of the question. And what game do Catherine and Linton play? Uh, Emmy, your hand was was up pretty quick on that one. Oh, right. It was, I don't remember, the, it, they, they're throwing balls at each other. <laughs> the floor is lava. <laughs> <laughs> First, she wanted to be chased around, but then she wanted to play with... Oh, damn it. Yeah, they find those balls that are labeled C, C and, and H. H. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and symbolically, the one that's labeled H is root, like broken and like crap's falling out of it. Oh, here it is. Oh, yeah. She wanted to play blind man's buff, but Linton wasn't up for it. So then they found, <laughs> they found balls and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how could she beat him up just playing with a ball? It's Linton. 
What do you think? Here, Linton, catch. <laughs> it's too hard to lift my arms. <laughs> yes, uh, he consented to play at ball with me. We found two in a cupboard among a heap of old toys, tops and hoops, and battle doors and shuttlecocks. Bonus, who knows what a battle door is? Is it like a rock'em sock'em robot? <laughs> That's kind of what it sounds like. Minus one point. Damn it. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It goes with a shuttlecock. Oh, like a badminton? Badminton racket? I'll give you the point for that one, Emmy. Actually, I didn't give you your points for answering, though. You know what? That kind of turned into a collaborative answer. So I'll just give one point to each of you for that. But yes, uh, Emmy, you will get an extra point for uh, looking up the meaning of battledore. It's basically just a type of badminton racket or similar to a badminton racket. Just, you know, a paddle meant for whacking around a shuttlecock. <laughs> Apparently the game does not necessarily involve a net. You just kind of you just kind of try to keep the shuttlecock up in the air as long as possible. Apparently. <laughs> according to Wikipedia. Sounds like a night out. We talked about this a bit earlier, but uh for those of you who are playing along at home, what is Harriton Earnshaw's proud accomplishment that he shows off to Catherine? Okay, Andrew and Emmy, your hands both went up at the same time. All right, heads, it's Andrew. Tails, it's Emmy. Okay, Tails, Emmy. Okay. He can read. Yeah, he's so proud of that he can read. So sad. Okay, when, according to Nelly, did the events of Chapter 24 occur? Daniel. Just over a year ago, from the time that Nelly's telling the story, to Lockwood. Correct. These things happened last winter, sir, said Mrs. Dean. Hardly more than a year ago. Uh, two points. Been given a lot of two-pointers this session. So in the summer, when Catherine and Linton agree to meet, where is their meeting supposed to take place initially? Andrew? Isn't this the one that's supposed to take place, like, sort of, like, halfway between Thrushcross Grange and Wuthering Heights, but particularly shouldn't be on, it's not supposed to be on the Wuthering Heights property? That's correct. Not quite the precise answer, so I'll give you, let's see, you said halfway, so I'll give you half a point. There's a specific landmark. Uh, our place of meeting had been fixed at the Guidestone by the Crossroads. Uh, crossroads. What, according to Linton, is making him dull during his summer meeting with Catherine? Daniel? The heat and the walk that he endured before arriving at the meeting place, except not really at the meeting place. You know what I mean. It is the heavy weather and the heat that make me dull. I mean, I don't think he needed any help with being dull. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a point for that. How long does Catherine last before the awkward silence becomes too much for her? You mean the silence when they're not talking to each other or the silence when he falls asleep? There's a specific point of time where Kathy turns to Nellie's like, do we have to stay any longer? How long does she make it before that point? Emmy? Half an hour? Half an hour. They spend a rather miserable, sullen, silent time for half an hour before Kathy's like, man, this is boring. Yeah, two points for that. Yes, Daniel? But is it because she can only endure Hour, so can I go now? <laughs> yeah, she's like, okay, it's been half an hour. Oh no, but now he's sleeping, so we can't leave him while he's sleeping. This is another Sith Lord moment, by the way, because Nellie Dean's always like, oh no, we shouldn't visit. We shouldn't visit Linton. We shouldn't visit Linton. Now she's like, oh no, now we have to stay. Now we have to stay. You guys need to talk. Actually, yeah, Andrew, you're you're correct. He does fall asleep like ten minutes in. Yeah, it's because that's the that's where the thirty minutes in my mind comes because he's asleep when she's like goes to Nellie Dean. Is it been thirty minutes yet? Okay, are you ready for some points? Let's do it. So, coming in first place with 11 points, our teacher's pet for this episode is Daniel. What? Daniel, you did quite... You wow. fucking killed it this episode. You got an yeah. A-plus on your presentation. You're my good teacher's pet. Emmy in second place with 10 points. Bit of a tight race. Andrew, 8.5. Jesus. All right. Put All on right. the cap, Andrew. Put on the dunce hat of Sit shame. in the corner. Sweat. With Harriton. <laughs> as long as I'm not with Linton, I can deal with Harriton. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Daniel, why don't you assign, and I rolled the dice here, and it's uh, Emmy. You're going to be presenting. And Daniel, why don't you give Emmy the assignment? Okay. I um, mean, I'd love to hear a short infomercial. That sounds fun. I, I think... <laughs> I, I imagine that that would be uh, amazing coming from Emmy. So is that is that all right with you? Perfect. All right. That being done, uh, so next time we'll be reading 27, 28, 29. And, well, that whips our eighth episode and rides off to Thrushcross Grange. I'd like to thank our Victorian lit senpai, Charlotte Sampson, for enduring another episode with us. Thank you, and you're welcome. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers, Daniel Wishes and Emmy Doe. As I mentioned in the intro, Daniel has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, which I think is great. So go check that out wherever you find your podcast. Finger guns. Thanks to Ryo Namegaya for, you know. Uh, also, thanks to Arden Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. The show is edited by me. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Please tell somebody that we you know, exist. If you want to support the podcast with Moolah, which I believe is Greek for money, head over to the Yokohama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation, or better yet at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Keep your four and three and two and one-star reviews to yourself. There, I've just saved you negative Nellies some time. Thank me later. And finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, the fashion queen of the upstairs of the Bronte house. We'll be back soon for episode... Actually, we found out today she apparently likes to walk around as God made her, which I assume meant in the nude. We'll be back soon for episode nine. Check the show notes. See you then. Colas dismissed. The show is copyright 2020 by the Ogama Theatre Group. Also, the show was not edited by me, as I said in the outro. It was edited by Joan Chen. You can always tell when it's a Joan Chen edited episode because uh, there's no uh, there no takes. No takes. We just end. Anyway, see you next time. Thanks for listening.